primary use case for the project was importing melons from well from Brazil and Spain so one of the things that I think we all kind of know but we maybe don't think about too much is the supermarkets are very good now at maintaining a supply of products all the year round. You are listening to Farm to Fork, a series from The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is on food distribution. So, for example, with melons, they come from Brazil in the winter uh, and then from Spain, South Spain in, in, in the summer. So the use case we used was the, the melons coming from Brazil. The project uses uh, IoT, Internet of Things, devices to, to capture data as, as one of the thing, one of the aspects of the project. So the, the company Contained.io uh, have a, a device called an Octosense, which has got sort of eight channels of IoT capturing data. And that enables us to track where the product is in the world as it moves across the sea and across the land. So one of the technical uh, subcomponents of the project was looking at different mechanisms, uh, telecom systems, satellite systems to, to track that data. So that's one of the, the innovations that's emerged. So uh, what are you gonna go for, Cindy? I'm gonna go for the apricot and pistachios part. And could I have some um, coffee, please? Coffee, what yeah. type of coffee? Um, espresso. Espresso, single shot or double shot? Single shot. I'll have, uh, could I have some Assam tea? You got SMT? two, yeah, yes. you got two, haven't you? What's the, um, Bukal, how do you pronounce that? Okay, and what's the other, what's the other you got another one, is that? stronger. That's a stronger one. Yes. I'll go for that, please, yeah. And I'll have the, the burnt cheesecake. The burnt cheesecake? Yeah, thank you. Would you like milk with the tea? Yes, please, a bit of soy milk. Soy milk? Yeah. It curdles. I know, just warm it up for me. Yeah. <laughs> you say that every time, it's so nice. I don't remember. I was on tape, so... Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I don't like this. <laughs> Do you think people actually turned up to see us today? Uh-huh, of course, because there's a massive announcement, wasn't there? <laughs> Join us. What are you laughing at? <laughs> Where are we, Sydney Parakil? Well, Matthew Charles, we're here again in our usual place at the To Love Tea and Coffee House in London's Battersea, just down the road from Clapham Junction, and we're here having our tea and cake and coffee. Yes, we are. And uh, you've gone for, was it the apricot and... Pistachio tart. That looks really, really nice, actually. And you've gone for the burnt bass cheesecake. Burnt bass cheesecake. To be honest, if I'm given a choice Mm -hmm. of cakes and cheesecake is on the menu, I I just have to go for it. Good to know. So I'm I'm always, yeah, (laughs) we go out. I'm looking forward to tucking into that. And yes, we are out having tea, coffee and cake and cheesecake. I'm basing ourselves here again at the To Love Tea and Coffee House because this is Farm to Fork, our series on the relationship between standards and food. Now, Cindy, given this is the fourth episode of the series, we are definitely working our way through the rather amazing cakes they have here. Yes, we are indeed. Now, in this series, our menu of episodes is loosely following the food cycle of food innovation, production, packaging, distribution, consumption and waste management and featuring some of the key standards involved in each of them. Yes, and playing us in at the top of the episode was Steve Brewer from the University of Lincoln, not talking about cakes or cheesecake, but about melons from Brazil. Because melons that are grown in Brazil and shipped to the UK is the use case for a digital food distribution and standards project called Trusted Bites. In this case, 
B-Y-T-E-S. I think we can all uh, see what they did there. Yes, for sure. Now, this project is all about improving efficiencies within the fresh produce industry across the supply chain and with central government. Now, there's more Melon Chat later with Steve and his University of Lincoln colleague, Simon Pearson, all about Trusted Bites. And Steve and Simon, they're the first slice in this episode, but we have two more slices too. So, Cindy, while I... Well, I tuck in and take a bite out of my uh, burnt Basque cheesecake. Why don't you say what else is on the menu in this episode? Of course. So in Slice 2, there's more on Trusted Bites minus the melons from Brazil with Seamus Galvin from BSI. Seamus gives a BSI perspective on the role of standards in supporting not only the relationship between different supply chain partners in the project, but also how they support cross-border customs and regulations needs. And in Slice 3, we'll hear from Toby Pickard from IGD, a food and grocery research and membership organization. Toby tells us about some of the latest technological trends in food distribution and retail. Now, throughout the Farm to Fork series and this episode, we are, of course, exploring the role of standards. So here's Sarah Walton from BSI to tell us more about the general relationship between standards and food distribution. Hi, my name is Sarah Walton and I am the lead for the food sector at BSI. Digitalisation is having a transformative effect on supply chains across all sectors, improving efficiency and transparency, reducing cost and boosting sustainability, whilst at the same time creating conditions for more resilient business practices. This is as true for the food industry as it is for any other. Apart from making sure that products arrive fresh in our shops, Organisations in the food supply chain have a responsibility to protect public health. Using technology to share data and improve collaboration between organisations at different points in the supply chain helps to maximise the transparency around the quality and the provenance of food products. However, things can become difficult sometimes because of the complexity of food supply chains and the necessity of securely dealing with sensitive data. So, initiatives like Trusted Bytes, which use digital technology to facilitate the flow of goods across international borders, and being featured in this episode of The Standards Show, are helping to deal with this complexity. And standards have a role to play. There are standards already in place, helping key aspects of digitalisation of the food supply chain to have the greatest possible positive impact, particularly with regards to food safety and quality as well as supporting food distribution much more generally. Standards like 22,000 for food safety management systems and PAS 700 for supply chain risk management provide practical guides for organisations to put strong systems in place. There are some more specific standards too, like ISO 23412, which helps organisations involved in refrigerated delivery services to implement best practice to improve the quality, consistency and safety of their services. This is why, for all parts of the food cycle, including distribution, standards provide a way for everyone to agree what good looks like. Before we tuck into this episode, a quick reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. So in this first slice of this episode, we'll hear my conversation with Steve Brewer and Simon Pearson about the Trusted Bites project. 
Steve and Simon are both from the University of Lincoln, a modern university in the east of England, specialising in agriculture. With a background in leading innovation projects, particularly around the role of data, Steve Brewer is Network Coordinator for the Internet of Food Things Network Plus at the university. This brings together data and computer scientists, chemists and economists to investigate how artificial intelligence, data analytics and emerging technologies can enhance the digitalization of the UK food supply chain. With a family and personal background in farming and farming technology, Simon Pearson is Professor for Agri-Food Technology at the University of Lincoln and Director of the Lincoln Institute of Agri-Food Technology, with responsibility for developing university research in this area, including the digital transformation of agriculture. I started by asking Simon, what exactly is the Trusted Bytes project? It really, really came together really off the back of a lot of work that Steve and I had done with the Food Standards Agency, FSA, on data sharing, data governance. And again, we, we, we realised that um, technology alone isn't going to enable people to move data around supply chains. Uh, and if you move data around supply chains, you can do some really positive things. You can reduce food waste, you can drive productivity, uh, you can... Uh, increase the flow of food, etc., etc. So d- digital, digital technology is going to transform the food system, but it will not transform the food system unless people start to share and exchange data. And so we were, we were working very heavily with the FSA on looking at that, that, uh, that issue of sharing. And then Steve wrote a, quite an important paper in uh, Nature Food on the governance mechanisms to try and get people together to, to start that, that, that data exchange. So it's about how you create a uh, maybe it's a company limited by guarantee or and the rules for sharing, the penalties for not sharing, and all of those things you've got to think about uh, privacy, security, and all those things you've got to think about when, you, when you're dealing with, with data. So we did this thing with the FSA, and we realised that 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 was uh, an opportunity, and and uh, and what we wanted to do with the FSA work is we then demonstrate it, and that led on to the trusted bytes. A program which is a demonstration of the way that people can share data and uh, because of the university's connection in the food supply chain particularly in uh, Lincolnshire we had a network of produce um, suppliers so it might be grapes melons um, apples pears those sorts of lines which are typically imported into the UK along very complex supply chains uh, and one of those produce companies had a a digital company which is contained IO who's developing a digital platform for data sharing, data exchange and uh, data data sharing and what we wanted to do in Trusted Bytes is really put all of those businesses together and then test the hypothesis that standards for data sharing uh, are what's going to help transform the uh, food system and that we could drive some positive um, public goods from that, that data sharing. Uh, and then Steve and I put, put the consortium together. That included FSA uh, collaborating with us, HMRC collaborating with us, uh, and then the projects uh, then really at demonstration phase. And it's now uh, been look, you know going to the next step really, sort of you know, sort of scaling and, and looking to see how we can really really not just take one small ecosystem of people sharing data, but how can we scale this at a far higher level across the food system? So Trusted Byte's been a, been a very, very important um, 
project. So not a technology project, but really a, a governance and a standards project. Well, I was going to come back. I want to come back to the sort of impact that the, the project has had so far. But I'm interested in there and what you said about you know the why it was developed. In a sense, that I can understand there's a nice to do here, but was there a sort of a negative? What 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 particular was there a problem that oh, was trying to be solved or anything like that, Steve? Yes, um, it was very much driven by a challenge, um, and and that challenge had been captured through earlier work with with. Undertaken with the uh, uh, Internet of Food Things project, so we'd started off looking at technology. We'd looked at the the ways in which technology is used, the the the, the, the different sort of supply process, the different models of collaboration in the food system. So, you know, the the, the very you know the, the excellent um, large scale supermarket model that we're all familiar with is is one sort of the cooperatives, small scale cooperatives. Um, supporting local communities uh, is another. You know, you get your organic food boxes and things, um, and we we looked at these different things, and we saw that what the challenge was was formalising or improving uh, interactions between these these different organisations, and so that involved the data sharing. So that was really the motivation. So we saw that this was actually a critical pathway forwards if we were going to address the overarching challenges of the food system which you know simon's talked about in terms of the the environment addressing sort of net zero goals food waste uh, energy water scarcity all of these things that matter everywhere in order to start to address them we need to make supply chains more resilient um more responsive etc and and secure exchange sharing of data is, is the way to do this so that was very much our motivation that had come out of the report which is in the public domain that we uh, uh, undertook for the food standards agency we developed this um, framework data trust framework for, for collaboration essentially had these three main components one of which was uh, interoperability of different s- systems um, and within that was was the standards element um, one was the governance how do you how do you actually implement this and manage it and ensure that it works smoothly and the third one was what we call operations which is sort of the business processes which also includes the business models because what we we also realized is that any any new appro- approach any new solution had to not just be affordable but had to be a beneficial business system for these you know the typical small businesses that work in the food system who have you know extremely tight margins weren't going to be looking for big outlays it would need to be a system they could be part of it needed to address power imbalances. So we're looking for standards and protocols that address potential power imbalances, but equally can lend themselves to uh, an approach that can be scaled up from you know, next to nothing that, that small business can, can afford it. So, yeah, it was very much driven by what we perceived from our research was the, the needs of the, the food system. So in terms of the project uh, so far, Steve, I'm interested to you know when, when did it really kick off, you know, and where are we now? And also then, you know, sort of a practical example of how the project has, has been applied so far within the food industry. Sure. So the project was a two-year project. Um, we're approximately three quarters of the way through. We're, great to say, it, uh, on track and we're going to deliver. So the, the primary use case for the project was importing melons from well from brazil and spain so one of the things that i think we all kind of know but we maybe don't think about too much is the supermarkets as, as simon referred to earlier 
are very good now at maintaining a supply of products all the year round. Um, now, you may or may not think this is a good thing, but they do it and people like it. So, for example, with melons, they'll come from Brazil in the winter uh, and then from Spain, South Spain in, in, in the summer. And we see similar things with, with strawberries in different regions of the world during different seasons. So the use case we used was the, the melons coming from Brazil. And in we so the, the project uses... Uh, IoT, Internet of Things, devices to to capture data as was one of the thing, one of the aspects of the project. So the the company Contained.io uh, have a, a device called an OctoSense, which has got sort of eight channels of IoT capturing data, and that enables us to track where the product is in the world as it moves across the sea and across the land. So one of the technical um, subcomponents of the project was looking at different mechanisms uh telecom systems satellite systems to to track that data so that's one of the the innovations that's emerged we also have been working with the hmrc the tax office who and other government departments are interested in having access to the data to um have knowledge of, of where things are so the way that the 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 blue ring technology which is the the the, the dashboard on the information sharing system which brings to bear all the things we've been talking about, the use of standards to, to integrate. Essentially, what it does, it starts with the, the original order uh, manifest. And as the, the goods make their journey towards the customer, more data can be added to this, this, this framework of data, if you like, that can be seen. The key point about the system is that different people in different roles in different organizations have access to different data as appropriate to their needs. Um, and by maintaining that security, it, it has uh, tangible benefits uh, in terms of being able to help the, the goods make their way across borders and things like that. So we focused on that one use case to develop the system, to develop the ideas. That that works, that's happening, and the, the, the companies are using it for, for real in anger. Um, another key point to this is that it, it doesn't, remove the need for the uh, the ERP system, the actual business system that particular businesses have. This is a, this is a means of communicating, of, of collaborating, of sharing data between otherwise independent organizations. And that's very important in the in the food system, which is uh, is which is really an ecosystem of independent organizations all competing with each other and then periodically seeking to collaborate. So that's why So just on that just on that, Stephen, on that, with, so with the melon, I mean, I love melons, yeah. right? So I'm interested in what, what difference it makes to me as a consumer for melons. But give me an example there of the, what, what would have happened before? You talk about the collaboration. So in the supply chain, what, what difference is it making okay. to, to the transport of melons across, across the water? So, that's, so that, that's a very good question. I like melons too. Melons are great. You know, when they're fresh, when they're tasty, <laughs> they're, they're, they're good. When they're, when they're being left, uh, in, in a dockside because uh, a container ship hasn't had the right paperwork uh, and they've been left to um, get a bit moldy, then that's not good. So it's really about maximizing the efficiency efficiency of the system uh, and avoiding risks where with, you know, whatever bureaucracy or paperwork, things have got held up, um, goods get wasted. And that, that happens more than you know, you might like to think. So this this is one of our headline goals of reducing food waste, which we talked about earlier. Um, the 
you know, we can all have a different view on Brexit, but the fact is there's a lot of paperwork involved in, in getting goods over borders. Um, and that comes at a, a real cost, um, whether it's uh, costs that are incurred because of crossing a border or just through doing the paperwork. So by keeping, rather than filling in multiple forms, by having a baseline of data in the system and cumulatively adding to that, that data can then be either used to produce necessary forms or better still avoid a form because the data is there and can be accessible. And that both speeds up the journey. And if we're going to have enjoy the fresh melons, you know, that journey has got to be optimized and keeps costs down. So as with all food products, costs are really tight margins. So th those are some uh, really tangible benefits. Yes, I, I, but before you, before you jump in there, so I need to check, do you like melons as well? <laughs> do I like melons? Uh, um, I'm not, uh, yeah, oh, yes I do. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, Stephen. I think it was quite a slow yes there. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll put, your, we'll put your melon prejudice to one side, but go, go on, you're going to jump in there. Yeah, well, I think I think if you think of a supply chain, what you want to do is that, that supply chain's got to be super fast because you've got fresh products that, that's rotting. And Steve says you don't want your melons stuck at a port. So one of the things that Trusted Bites do, it's interacting with HMRC. So it's sending data pre a truck arriving at a border so that, all of the data is loaded onto the HMRC and the customs and the uh, food standards databases before the truck arrives. So when that truck gets there, hopefully the, the uh, authorities go, okay, well, we trust that truck. It's um, reputable. This is the data from that truck. So okay. So it gets green channeled. So it goes through very, very quick. Because as that truck's moving, it's collecting more and more data. So, so on that data, you're going to have data on the provenance, where those melons are from, you're going to have the temperature data, the supply chain data, what we you know, predicting whether those those melons are still fresh, all those sorts of things. So once that truck's got through uh, customers, it's on the route into supply chain. You need to keep all that data together because other users of those melons, whether it's retailers, food service companies, um, pubs, restaurants, whoever, they're going to want to know where their food's from, and they need that data associated with uh, any product that they may. Uh, order, buy, and consume down to a single melon. So if you haven't got all that data together in a coherent way, you can't do that. So Trusted Bytes is trying to put that together. But the key thing around Trusted Bytes is it's enabling people all the way through the supply chain who might want that data to get that data quickly. So if you've got a food safety outbreak, for example, you need to act fast. So you need to know where those melons are from or whatever it is or where those uh, salads are from or what it, where, whatever it is. And you need to know uh, what environment it's been and all those sorts of things really very, very quickly. And that's what Trusted Bytes is doing. But through the supply chain collaborating, you've got more chance of getting that data really, really, really fast. Uh, so there are many, many uses of that data. So it's it's trade, it's borders, uh, it's traceability, all those things. And people need to be able to get it quick. And you can only get it quick if you're collaborating and if you have standards to enable that collaboration. I was, just interested, I was about to get to that, actually. What, what role, from your perspective, what role are standards playing here within this project? Food for a thought. Now, because of all this talk of melons from Brazil, I'm going to interrupt myself and Simon here with some food for thought. Most Brazilian melons are grown in the northeastern states of Rio Grande do Norte and Syrah. 
Now, I don't know if I need to call the pronunciation police on myself here. Apologies to our Portuguese-speaking listeners, and especially those who hail from northeastern Brazil, if I got those wrong. Now, the project partner in Trusted Bites supplying the melons is called Melon Co., established by Agricola Formosa, using a specialist team to provide an end-to-end melon supply solution for the UK market. Melon & Co. supply all different types of melons, yellow honey, watermelon, galia, piela de sapo, snowball and cantaloupe. And my favourite fact about melons is about a type of cantaloupe, the Ubara King. The Ubara King melons are the most highly prized of all, and they are grown exclusively in the Ubara region of Japan and only inside greenhouses, as opposed to mass farming. And they are protected by geographical indication, like Wagyu beef or Iberian ham. This means they can be expensive. Very expensive. In 2018, two of these melons were sold at auction for 29,000 US dollars. I mean, I like melons, but wow, $29,000? Now, back to the question I asked Simon, what role are standards playing in the Trusted Bites project? Uh, so there's several things. It's um, trusted trader status. So uh, there's um, there's a there's a particular work package which BSI are doing for us, which is around trusted trader status. So so how do you how do you uh, how does HMRC know that uh, somebody who's moving food through the borders is trusted? So we can trust them. They're not going to do something, you know, ship products which are not food. Um, Etc. Etc. So, how do you trust them? So, there's a standards piece there which BSI have helped with, to, to, which is called the uh, AEO uh, um, certification, and that's that's a pre. Uh, it's a warrant that the that whoever's supplying food uh, is uh, doing it well. So, there's a standards piece there. Then there's a second standards piece around the data collaboration and, and sharing. So, how do you actually then enable sharing? Uh, some of that standards might be, say, data interoperability. So it might say that you've got to layer your data in in a certain way uh, so, or make it accessible in a certain way. It might say that you've got to curate that data in a certain way. You've got to keep it available for, for X number of weeks, months, or years. So standards are important in all of those uh, questions. So Melon was the, the sort of test case here, but I assume then um, this can be applied to to any aspect of it or any product really across the in, in a supply chain absolutely any product any supply chain anywhere it's the same it's the same principles uh and and uh so it can be food it can be manufacturing components uh or anything uh everything that's moved needs data uh, has data associated with it and that data needs to be exchanged or shared. Yeah. Just wonder how how groundbreaking an idea is this? Is this a, a unique product, a unique project in the world? Um, I think the uh, the work we've done on the governance piece is very original, um, and we recognise very early. You know, we, when we started the journey, we said, "Well, why are people sharing these data?" And you find you tend to find that people share them within linear supply chains when you've got farmer. A typically sells always to retailer B, typically always sells to consumer C. I think what we realize very quickly is supply chains aren't like that. They're very, very complex and they're ephemeral. So you, you'll have traders. So so retailer A might might uh, buy from farmer X, Y, or Z. So things are moving in real time. So supply chains aren't fixed. They're not linear. And in those supply chains, which are typical supply chains, data sharing is a real problem. 
And, uh, and so we realized that quite early on. And then we sort of thought, well, how do we then figure that out? And it's around governance and it's about bringing people together to uh well, I was interested to say there about that. I don't, I don't know which one, which one of you wants to have a go at that. About how, how did you overcome that, and why did you think you? How were you able to overcome it, and why do you think you were able to overcome it in this particular instance? Um, well, the reason for that is that we we got a, a bunch of you know clever people together on the project and sort of thrashed around the problems, the challenges, as, as Simon's just uh, described it. We looked around at other approaches in the world one of the, one of the ones we found was in um, the Netherlands uh, Rotterdam port of Rotterdam there's a project called iShare which was seeking to optimize the logistics in and out of the port of Rotterdam through exactly what Simon's described this sort of permissioned sharing li- in, a, in, a, in a limited or restricted way of a certain data and then I think this is quite important to allowing third parties to have access to some of that data to do things with it, for example, to optimize logistics, or it could it could be something else. But the point being, you need this this framework to um, allow and govern the sharing exchange of data that is, that is separate from the parties themselves. In other words, that you know, if you've got two parties collaborating in some shape or form, they need a third party to help them uh, govern that that exchange of data, and that sort of led us to. De- developing this this the framework that we proposed of a sort of uh, data trust framework uh, and that the, the terminology there is quite specific in the sense that a, a data trust has been sort of suggested is being suggested by people as a as a collection of a pooled collection of data that can be used for various things we were very certain that the the, the solution to the the challenge we were looking at was was the opposite not collecting or accumulating data but rather uh governing and enabling it, it to be shared across different parties which comes back to this sort of ecosystem thing so yes i think the governance thing is 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 pretty original quite a few people have tried different variants of, of looking at supply chains traceability provenance um and and that can be done if, if you've got a a pretty an unmoving unchanging supply chain but once you start to look at the dynamic ecosystem you need something dynamic to to do that so that's a key um aspect of what's come out of the trusted bytes project um by the end of the project by next spring we will have developed a solution for that which will complement the blue ring technology which is sort of an example of how that can be implemented and we'll we'll continue to build up this ecosystem develop more solutions and and as I mentioned, as we discussed earlier, because we were conscious it needed to be um, accessible uh, and have you know, minimal barriers to entry, we, we're quite confident that this will sort of take off by the end of the project and, and, will, and will lead to more implementations. And as you say, you can scale across other, other pro- products, certainly in the food system and also in other scenarios, which, is, which we've got similar challenges. So, Stephen, you mentioned there. You mentioned um, about the project sort of being two thirds along the way. So, what's left to do now before before the end of the project? What's what are you currently working on? Um, really uh, finalising the the different strands that have that have all been worked on in parallel, if you like the, the the standards piece from from BSI, some of the telecommunications stuff that the satellite applications catapult has been working on. Um, Alex has been making great progress with the the. Um, the the blue ring system 
uh, tied in with the the clients, uh, and the we're working with the the law firm Pinson Masons to develop the the legal framework, the legal structure to implement the the trust framework. Um, so we've we've got a really good design of of what that would look like, but also importantly, the processes and mechanisms needed to to bring that to fruition. Um, and I think over the next few months, uh, we, we'll we'll actually enact that. Um, the system is there. We'll, we'll sort of develop the the business model, if you like, around how how the charging for this works. So combinations of um, subscriptions, micropayments, etc. Uh, so it's really t- taking this is an innovation project, taking it to um, a really good state of readiness by uh, by the spring. And, o- and over the longer term, then you know, what impact do you, do you hope this project to to have on, you know, the differences it will make really to, to food distribution generally? I think it'll be quite significant. I'm I'm really quite confident in that. We we we're continuing to take these ideas forwards across some other projects, um, so we can build on the the underlying structure. We can bring in different use cases. We're looking at one with the the use of drones in farming systems, and I think. We'll we'll just imp- I, I really do think we'll we'll be able to implement this. We're we're already supporting real industry sectors. People are seeing the benefits, uh, and we're we're seeing a lot of interest from uh, across different government departments, businesses, large and small, in terms of how this might work. And I think the one of the great values of the of the work that we've done is that by understanding a the big picture, the the vision of what's needed coupled with being able to break it down into these um, subcomponents, be it the, the standards piece or the, the different technologies, that gives us a way forward so that the different areas can each be worked on but then come back together. So I think that's the the beauty of the the, the framework, the conceptual model that we developed, that the, we, we know how the different areas work together, how the standards in, interrelate with different, different aspects of what's needed. I, I think it's foundational. I think it's a groundbreaking thing. I think anything... I was in the United States two weeks ago and they're looking at a similar approach to food safety. So how you share data to enable food safety in fresh produce, which uh, where they've had a number of problems. So food safety is going to be a big one. But anything that can can facilitate trade, speed trade up, take the cost out of trades, got to be a good thing. Anything that moves towards paperless trade, high-speed trade has to be a good thing. So this will roll and roll. This, that's just the direction of travel. And I, I think this, is, uh, this hopefully will be an accelerant. So we heard Simon earlier talking about standards for data sharing, a key part of the Trusted Bytes project, a project which he also described as rather than just being a data and technology project, it is also a governance and standards project. Now, there are many partners involved in Trusted Bytes, uh, Innovate UK, the UK's Government Innovation Agency, the UK Fresh Produce Network, and the Manufacturing Technology Centre, or MTC. And as we've heard, Mellon & Co. in Brazil, established by Agricola Formosa, using an experienced specialist team to provide that end-to-end melon supply solution for the UK market, and the University of Lincoln, and many other partners, including BSI. Now, for a bit more on BSI and the standards aspect of the project, I had a chat with Seamus Galvin. Seamus is Core Innovation Programme Manager at BSI over in the Republic of Ireland, but working globally across the BSI group, enabling innovation across each of BSI's core offer of standards, certification and consulting. 
But I started by asking Seamus about that important aspect of data and not just how it is shared between trusted actors in the food supply chain, be that for melons or any other food, you know, the the producers, the manufacturers, the hauliers and retailers, but how the data are also shared with other interested parties, as he explains. Trusted Bites really was really focused on how can we make food supply chains better? How can we digitize supply chains so that actors uh, working together to move food from A to B are able to share data more effectively and and, and, and create um, efficiencies um, in terms of how they share data, but crucially in terms of how goods are moved across borders. Um, so it's not just interactions between the food actors in the supply chain themselves, like the producers and the manufacturers and and the retailers and the hauliers. It's actually um, how is data shared then with uh, uh, UK border agencies, be they regulators, be they customs agencies. Um, and and from that point of view, it's really how can risk be, be managed better because customs really want to have better visibility on supply chains, in this, in, in this case, food supply chains, so that they can achieve better risk out- outcomes. So it's sharing data within the food actors and then sharing data within government actors and the interaction between those. And obviously, um, we're, we're working in particularly in a UK context, but but this challenge is also very much um, and global in, in how it's being thought through as well. I then went on to ask Seamus to describe BSI's role and the role of standards and other aspects of best practice in the project and what differences they are making to actors in the food supply chain. So, so we're involved in several areas. I, I, I suppose I could say it in, in, in three specific areas. So there's so in, in, in the first year of the project, um, our emphasis was really how do we, uh, and this is the standards piece, it's how do we identify and codify the, the shared best practice that is, 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 is relevant to the domain areas of the project or, or, or the market framework. So the, the members in the project really, you know, um, represent a market framework. And that involves looking at what traditional standards are relevant, you know, big S standards, I'll call them, and then what other aspects uh, would be kind of more flexible notions of best practice and, and 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 policy guidance. So things like collaborative business relationships would be a very key ISO principle, and that 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 we we we've noted. There's IT service management, there's IT procurement, and there's very well known standards there. Um, and then there is uh, there's other elements then as well. Um, so at the kind of governance level, but then there's actually more proprietary notions of best practice. So the technology vendors. And the, the policy stakeholders actually would then have their notions of best practice, which then we're also taking note of. So developing a state of art around that was the first thing. And then the second stage of, of what for us was, was codifying that best practice. So how do we, so how do we actually develop a, a framework that brings that together to meet the needs of, of, of the, the, uh, the, the cohort in Trusted Bytes? And then from there, how do we codify that best practice in technology? So actually taking those standards, taking those key elements, what are the key data elements, and then actually demonstrating that effectively as a smart standard. So in our case, we're using the Origin Trail decentralized knowledge graph. Um, again, we work very closely with Trace Labs. It's an open protocol. It's an open standard. It enables very, very flexible, decentralized um representation of key information that then can be shared across multiple parties. So that that's our protocol of interest, but there are also other data sharing protocols that other members are using as well. So you almost have a layered approach to how data sharing happens. Um, 
So, so really, that's our notion of a digital standard and actually representing what that looks like and then using that digital standard or that data core as a basis for developing new risk applications. So the, the piece we're working on now in the second year really is how um, we can demonstrate how customs can actually have a much more um, flexible view of risk. So what they want to do is actually manage movement of goods across the border, particularly managing what they call trusted trader schemes. Um, an AEO authorized economic operator is, is a key trusted trader scheme. So actually representing how data is captured um, upstream in the supply chain in terms of that compliance. So using the likes of BSI Connect, then representing dynamic movement of goods. So other technology providers, so telemetry data as a shipment moves, customs data, bringing that all together in a standardized approach and then building an application where customs have a view in, in real time and, and upfront and at all stages in the shipment lifecycle where they can actually really identify high risk shipments in a much more flexible way and then actually have better ways of prioritizing where they where they invest their resources. So that's really, it's that trusted traded demonstrator is what we're working on in the second year of the project, again, built on this standards and, and database that I just described. What, what trusted tried to, it, it's basically, um, making it easier for actors in the supply chain to, I suppose, to um, at the start, for example, procurement information or ordering information or customs documentation. So making it easier to actually gather that data and to and to share that data. And that just starts with better forms, better digitization uh, at the start um, and then better integration with systems that need to receive that data. So um, so that could be other, you know, a producer sharing data with a haulier a haulier sharing data then with the the end receiver of those goods, um, also that 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 data being submitted to to UK Customs, so making that that experience more seamless, um, but also data being shared in a way that actually preserves privacy and, and and preserves the sovereignty of each of the partners because obviously there's some things they want to share with each other, there's other things they don't want to share with each other. So making that much more flexible, um, making it it much more seamless. Um, and then having the different parties achieve efficiencies off the back of that. And in particular, if these organizations are able to more effectively share data um, with the government end, it means when they're actually at the point of border, the checks have been done in advance as much as possible. And there's a better view of risk. So they're more likely then to actually have their goods move, move seamlessly through the border. So that, that's what good looks like for, the, for the, the food industry players in particular. And it's really giving them an opportunity to work with the government stakeholders to actually improve solutions. Um, and there's a real mutual drive on both sides to actually figure out how they can do things and continuously improve things over and above the current state of the art and how can how they can actually um, apply emerging technology. So it is a very important project, both for government stakeholders and for food industry stakeholders that, that really make up the, the core of the market framework. Now, as a final question, I asked Seamus to look ahead and assess the potential long-term impact offered by the project for food distribution. I, I think in five to 10 years, you would hope and expect that um, the food industry will be much more digitized. So, you know, there's a lot of smaller players in the food industry, particularly as you go move, uh, upstream at the producers and the agriculture level. So they will have much better digital solutions, digital tools for capturing data in different ways. And, and by doing that, then there'll be much uh, more seamless integration of those digital technologies and that captured data 
with the other systems that um, ultimately um, produce the benefits, so downstream. So uh, seamless, I suppose, standardized data sharing uh, between producers and manufacturers, between producers and hauliers, between all of that ecosystem and government systems. And it'll just, you know, it'll just happen. It, it's something that will just be uh, be be baked in and and be embedded. And the food players will uh, be able to interact with that in a much more straightforward, much more simplistic way. So, what I've described is very much the kind of the the back end kind of technology to make it happen. But to them, they're just a consumer. They don't need to know all that complexity. Um, and it's really and 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 then over time, the use of that technology becomes. Um, more, um, more straightforward, more cheaper to use. I think that's that's ultimately what good would look like here in five to ten years' time. And I think there's a very important piece I hadn't mentioned. So what uh, the manufacturing technology center? So it's it's how do they actually um, raise the digital maturity of these uh, food industry players as well? And um, because there is a lot of complexity in that, how you go from you know their uh, their field operations are their manufacturing to their business systems and actually making all that data uh, of high quality um, having very good, strong system integration. So actually um, ha- enabling more organizations to be mature digitally so that they can form a more effective part of these ecosystems and actually share data. So I think this is still, you know, this standardization and data interoperability challenge is still, um, you know, it's still, it's still a very open field for the food industry, but in five to 10 years time, I would think that you will see much more seamless sharing, interoperability, integration, and seamless movement of goods. Ultimately, that's more effective and more efficient. That's 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 what the uh, the the aim is of this. Food for thought. Now, in this episode, we have spoken to colleagues from the University of Lincoln, and Lincolnshire is England's second largest county by area and produces over twenty percent of all foodstuffs grown in the UK. And Lincolnshire produces three of Britain's most iconic foods. The Lincolnshire sausage, Lincolnshire poacher cheese and Lincolnshire plum bread or loaf. The Lincolnshire plum loaf is perhaps the most famous of all English tea loaves. It was first made in 1901 by Charles Myers in the small market town of Alford in Lincolnshire. It is served with butter, cheese, Lincolnshire poacher cheese, obviously, or toasted. Nice. So in slices one and two of this episode, we heard from Simon, Steve and Seamus about the application of new and innovative technologies and standards used in food distribution through the Trusted Bytes project and how standards are shaping and influencing behind the scenes, not only in terms of the technology, but also in the governance. It's all about digital trust, really. In this third and final slice of the episode, we'll hear my conversation with Toby Pickard and pull back a bit for a more strategic look at technology and food distribution and retail more broadly. Toby is from IGD, a food and grocery research and membership organisation. Working in the commercial insights team, he looks at the trends impacting the future of food and grocery retail with a particular interest in the area of technology and sustainability. I started by asking Toby about from where in the world these food distribution innovations are originating from. It's, it's a good question, and I think it kind of varies depending on the innovation. Um, previously, I would say a lot of tech-led innovation and in-store tech-led innovation was coming from Asia. 
Um, a few years ago, um, Alibaba launching its physical stores, sort of coined the term around um, new retail. And these were stores that were all about delivering online orders, as well as delivering in-store experience and also your daily shop. So by online orders, uh, I mean that pickers, so store associates, would walk around picking um, an online order using handheld sets and QR codes to know what products to pick that have been placed by the consumer. They would only deliver within, a th I think, three kilometer radius of the store. So for that store, that helps with profitability challenges of delivery with online. But also they introduced some quite, again, interesting tech, but actually maybe wasn't the most new and novel, but it was a novel application. So they, they used basically a bit like um, a dry cleaner, I don't know if you remember, but sort of you go to your dry cleaners or back in the day with dry cleaners, you used to go in there and they would have a conveyor belt uh, of all the clothes that are hanging that you could go and then sort of when you came to collect your goods, the conveyor belt would go round and you'd get your, given your clothes or picked off the conveyor belt. They introduced a similar kind of technology into the store. So those online store pickers would basically put the shopping into onto a conveyor belt that would go up into the, attached onto the ceiling of the store and would get delivered to the back of store for a, a cyclist to then take that product to the consumer. So quite novel, uh, interesting as a shopper when you walk the store to see bags of groceries getting taken up to the, the ceiling and um, taken out to the back of store. Uh, they also introduced things like um, kind of restaurants in store that we're seeing more and more in the UK, but again, much more experiential where you could actually have your goods cooked for you in front of you. Um, and so it's a real sort of combination of retail and restaurant. And they also, for shoppers, if you were just going there to get your daily or weekly shop, um, you could purchase all your products via your mobile phone, uh, and you could also check out in a cashless way. So I think from that sort of overall picture a number of years ago, we're seeing a lot of um, tech being led from Asia and even in-store robotics that would either, these robots would greet you, um, they could tell you about promotions in the store, even maybe take you to parts of the store um, and actually be used for product sampling. I think now we've probably seen uh, the US sort of really up its game in the last few years where we're seeing a lot of tech being led from the US uh, and that could be around um, last mile deliveries. So the likes of Walmart um, really pushing forward with autonomous last mile delivery. And by this, I mean vans, of sort of a grocery van that could deliver to your home in an autonomous fashion, so no driver, um, to the likes of Walmart, Kroger, trialing drones, so aerial drones that could fly to people's homes, um, packages, uh, small small basket shops, basically, but within a matter of minutes. And then the likes of sort of cashierless or just walkout technology. I saw my first example in 2016 in Scandinavia, but Arguably, Amazon sort of led the real charge here um, with its just walkout technology stores. But since then, we've seen a number of retailers partner with um, third-party tech providers and introduce just walkout technologies or a cashierless shopping experience, be it Tesco, um, Audi, uh, Netto. In Israel recently, uh, one of their leading retailers did, has introduced this along with Reve in Germany. So I think we're seeing sort of the balance of technological innovation shifting, but I probably would say still being led by Asia and North America um, 
with pockets of innovation in Europe. What was just walk out? Is that where it's completely automated store? Is that what you mean? Um, it's it's a good question because yeah, people often get this uh, confused or wrong. So just walk out technology is actually a term that Amazon have trademarked. Um, so it's applicable to their stores, the Amazon Fresh stores in the UK and some of their stores in the US. And as a shopper, if you have the Amazon app or now, you can actually use your own um, palm to scan into the store. So you have to have pre-registered. You access the store by going through a turnstile, similar to if anyone's been on the London Underground, a turnstile there. So you sort of scan your mobile phone or your palm. You can walk into that store and basically pick up any products you want and walk out. And you can put those products into a basket, a trolley, or if you've brought your own bag or you're wearing a jacket, say, you can put those products straight into your pocket or even start eating them and then just walk out of that store. There's no checkout process at the end as such. You don't have to go through a self-checkout or put your um, food onto a conveyor. You just walk out of that store. And then within a matter of minutes or a bit longer sometimes, you'll get a digital receipt telling you what you picked up and purchased to clarify confirm your order so that's sort of a just walkout shopping experience they do have store staff in those stores it's again often a misconception when people think they're staffless there are a number of staff in these stores partly because they offer um, returns so there's someone at a returns desk if you've bought amazon goods online and you want to return them you can do it through the store and there's also people to age verify products such as alcohol or pharmaceuticals but that said, there are some other stores that are completely unstaffed to your original question. Um, and again, we saw the first example of that in 2016 in uh, Europe. Then we saw a really big push in sort of 2018, 19 in Asia for unstaffed stores. Uh, and these are literally sort of small container units often. So no more than about 15 to 18 um, square meters that again, you can scan into via a mobile phone, a credit card, or some are even using novel technologies like biometric, be it your palm print or facial recognition. And there might be between 500 to 1,000 products in this small store that you can just, again, pick up and walk straight out. Uh, and in these stores, there, there are no staff. Um, they're often what we call tethered to a larger store. So they'll be fulfilled by a store that's near it a larger store that's near it. And obviously, if there's any issues in the store, like breakages um, or spills, and so there's um, a slip or trip hazard, that will then be maintained by the, the store that's closest to it. So someone will go to that unstaffed store. Uh, and again, we've seen a lot of those in Asia, but we are now seeing a number of those in Europe. Um, Zabka, which is a Polish retailer, they've opened up just recently their 50th um, unstaffed store, what they call nano stores. And we are, again, also seeing some of these store concepts in um, America. For me, they're, they're really applicable for sort of rural um, uh, sites. Uh, so the first example I saw in Scandinavia was, the story goes, uh, it was built because uh, a man couldn't get uh, nappies for his child in the middle of the night when they ran out. He lived a long way away from the nearest town. The shops in the nearest town were closed. So he actually came up with this concept developed the concept and then since then it got bought and sort of replicated in Asia and then a number of other sort of tech providers have offered something similar uh, so really useful for maybe parts that you call like food deserts uh, they're relatively simple to sort of create these stores 
and you can even move them because they're often sort of uh, cargo containers. They could be used at festivals, for example, or university campuses or hospitals because you don't need staff to maintain them 24-7, but there may be a demand from shoppers or consumers to buy products 24-7 at universities or hospitals for like. I wonder if that's, is that the broad general trend here where I think you talk about untethered or, or um, staffless stores? Is that is that the general direction of travel? I'll give, I'll give you an example. Well, obviously, um, automated um, uh, tills. Yep. It's all that sort of stuff. And that, that took, a, I think it took a long time to embed to get the technology right. And I must admit, when I go into my local shop now, I tend to prefer to go to that route, whereas I didn't used to. So obviously that's the, yeah. the very beginning, beginning of it. But what you're describing there, uh, it's interesting about the, especially in a rural context, you know, uh, because you, you, you need to, you need access to a shop and, and products and things, but you, the staff are obviously asleep because you, yep. someone is buying nappies at three o'clock in the morning. And, but and is that, not- is that the general direction of travel? Is that, was that where we're headed? more sort of automated and, and unstaffed experiences? I, I think where, where it'll get to will be a, a bit of a hybrid, a blended approach. Um, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head uh, with your original point around um, self-checkout. All of these, the, the whole idea of that I've just talked about is all about behavior change. So although they might call them sort of just walkout stores or frictionless stores, there, there still is a friction. You still need to scan into that store, um, be it, buy a mobile phone, your um, credit card, debit card, or maybe using biometric. And that takes behavior change. So I think we're on this journey. So we've gone from your traditional tills to self-checkout, which still, to be fair, isn't perfect. Um, it is There are technologies that are enhancing it and making it better, but retailers still have shrinkage issues and consumers have issues using them. Um, the next iteration, if relevant in the right place, is likely to be the sort of frictionless or cashierless store approach. But again, I think it's about the right location um, to be relevant to the shopper. And I don't think it's necessarily about unstaffed stores. Um, Some stores actually, by removing the checkout process, you're then freeing up staff to be more added value so they can help shoppers install more. They can make sure products are on the shelf um, products are all priced up correctly, faced up correctly. Um, so I think it's you'll see that sort of blend of, in certain areas, it might be around sort of unstaffed, but in other stores, formats and sizes, you will still need staff, but actually having a repurposed checkout area can maybe mean that actually more products can be put in that store, more services can be put, on, put in that store. But ultimately, I think it's about this behavior change and behavior change takes time. So. I would imagine a number of stores will still maintain traditional checkouts um, because some people aren't fast adopters to technology. I just wonder, um, Toby, talking there about obviously the consumer experience being very different and obviously the the retail experience for the retailer, the sort of um, issue, uh, sorry, sort of procedures and processes and things they need to put in place in order to deliver that experience. Just wonder from a sort of food production perspective, perspective what changes would be needed to take place from the producing side in order for sort of along the line then for the consumers to enjoy the experience you're you're describing what what changes are underway there i think the big changes will be around sort of um, packaging so packaging look and feel Um, actually if a lot of the store is dependent upon um, ai uh, artificial intelligence for image recognition of the product, well, are producers making sure and suppliers making sure that their products are easily identifiable? 
Um, and I also then think maybe there's an opportunity for suppliers and brands to add uh, in a creative and engaging way, maybe more um, messaging to their products. Because if you're losing that potential moment of truth or if the till which often had impulse purchases near the till is no longer there how do you as a brand or a supplier make sure your products are thought about and i think that will be something that changes um that suppliers and brands will have to really consider so do they work with retailers around in-store digital branding um do they partner with retailers on their uh, mobile the shopper mobile apps um to inform shoppers of the latest uh, promotions and products and new product launches in store to hopefully drive shoppers to those products and those categories um, and then also maybe as I said sort of around better packaging that's more engaging it is a something that when shoppers are back at home they may look at their products they've purchased be it cereal boxes which might sit on your breakfast table in the morning or juice cartons and actually want to engage with that product or brand um, via something like a QR code, which we've got quite used to using due, due to COVID. And our phones are better at recognizing QR codes that could then bring that product to life. It might tell me how the product was made, where it was made. Uh, it might tell me some nutritional information about that product, or it might just be fun. I might be able to scan a cereal box and my children can play a game um, that's linked to that brand. So I think there are lots of considerations, but also sort of lots of opportunities for retailers and brands to utilize these sort of technologies to help bring their products to life where do we go next do you think what's the sort of the next trend in our sort of food distribution and sort of retail and consumer experience i think i i mean i, I often sort of try and stare out into my crystal ball and the sort of the next three to five years um i think really with everything that's going on at the moment uh with cost of living crisis a lot of it's going to come back down to sort of um, efficiencies. So how can the industry get even more efficient um, to keep prices low? Uh, likely to see an increase in private label products. So again, what does that mean for uh, retailers, brands and suppliers? And actually how when shoppers become more savvy, which might mean they're switching between retailers, you know, what does that again mean for you and your um your products or your brands so i think in the short term a lot of focus will be around sort of driving efficiencies in the supply chain uh to maintain low costs um but then also how can we tap into what we learned from 2007 and 8 with the global downturn you know what did shoppers do then what can we learn from that and also what's different uh what can we do to actually maybe encourage shoppers to purchase different alternative products um, that might be good for them and good for the environment. So, Cindy, we should say a huge thank you to Simon Pearson and Steve Brewer from the University of Lincoln and to Seamus Galvin from BSI for speaking to us about Trusted Bites for this episode. But in particular, about speaking about transporting melons from Brazil. <laughs> we should indeed. And we should also say thank you to Toby Picard from IGD about some of the ways we might be buying our melons in the future through those new consumer retail experiences. And of course, thank you to Sarah Walton from BSI too. Yes, so that's food distribution. And the next episode in this series, we'll be looking at food consumption. So, Matthew, we should probably start working up an appetite for that then. <laughs> Very good. <laughs>
Right, can I try a bit of this, um, what's it, apricot and pistachio? Pistachio tart, go on. Right, looks nice, let's dig in. Oh, it is good. I know, oh, nice. and your cheesecake, I must say, I haven't had a cheesecake that looks like this. Can you, I? Hold on, you're asking for a piece? Yeah, <laughs> that's my way of asking for a piece. Oi, <laughs> massive! What are you doing? That's almost all of it. You have been listening to Farm to Fork, the relationship between standards and food, a series from The Standard Show. Subscribe to us now, wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production.